Rahim. In the name of God, most merciful and merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad Brothers, sisters, and dear respected viewers, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And thank you once again for joining us in our series on the important topic of the afterlife. Um, as you may remember, inshallah, we began a subtopic of this bigger theme. Uh, this one having to do with trying to understand the relationship between this life and the next life. And we said that we're going to look at this relationship from different angles. So inshallah, today we're going to focus on one of those angles, an additional angle. Maybe one thing to keep in mind before we, we get into the topic is that, generally speaking, if we follow the normal progression, uh, if, if there, this was a more, let's say, classic course, this topic comes a little bit later. Uh, we build up to it, and then that becomes kind of a, a climax in, in the series. But based on you know the recent conversations we had, and uh, perhaps the the need to um, make highlight the importance of certain topics, their relevance, their practical applications. I decided to bring this one a little bit earlier in the series and inshallah the rest is going to be an explanation and continuing with the topic we're still going to continue looking at it from different angles but this one is really a key so inshallah you'll see the, the importance of it and the relevance of it and to me personally uh, I see that it's a very powerful explanation inshallah for uh, spiritual reasons beyond just the theology and the theoretical understanding of religion. But inshallah, this is up to you guys to uh, to understand. So simply saying this to, to understand that usually this is a little bit later in the series, but we brought it a little bit more forward. So this may mean that in future lectures, we may see, not, I won't say repetition, but some things are going to become more obvious than they should have been because we're giving away the key right now. Okay, with that said, so the topic for today, inshallah, is going to be the nature of reward and punishment. So when we talk about reward and punishment, what does that look like? And in more explicit terms, we want to understand the relationship between action in this world, and inshallah, this will become much clearer in future lectures. What do we mean by action? It's the combination of faith, deeds, and intentions. And we'll see that what really matters is intentions. We'll get to that. But for the time being, let's say deeds or actions in this world and how they become reward or punishment. So let's just call it the outcome in the afterlife. What's the relationship between these two? And we'll go through different alternatives here. So in terms of a recap, again, I won't spend too much time on this. Um, I think the topic of the soul is clear. So inshallah, this is always the foundation. This is always going to be the foundation for what we build on. The necessity of the afterlife, both scriptural and rational, should be clear. The nature of this world and the purpose for its existence and why we exist in it, inshallah, is clear. Then we went into the whole journey. And inshallah, that one is clear too. So we spoke about 
dying moments, Alam al-Barzakh, the intermediary world, and then the big milestones of the ending of this world and the beginning of the afterlife, and some of the big stations in the afterlife. And of course, we did not cover everything, just some highlights. The, then we talked about the, if you had a choice to make, if you had a, one of the two worlds to prioritize, which one would it be and based on what? And we also discussed the relationship and we said that, and this is going to be a metaphor that will come back again and again throughout the series, that the relationship between this world and the next, we use a metaphor, an image, being the image of the garden. And we said you're basically stuck in your afterlife world, in your afterlife existence. The only thing that you will have is the fruits of the trees and the seeds that you planted in this world. And that's it. You won't have any ability to act based on choice and voluntary action in the afterlife. So this is important to keep in mind. We solved, inshallah, a misconception that some may have with regards to the relationship between this life and the next in terms of the merits, the bounties, the, the things that we can enjoy in this world. That some people might think that if you enjoy something in this world, it means that you deserve this thing intrinsically and therefore you will also get to enjoy things in the afterlife. And we solved that issue. And the opposite, we also spoke about the other misconception and the other extreme, where someone might think that if you enjoy anything in this world, it means that you're going to be deprived of things that you can enjoy in the afterlife because in this world you're supposed to be living a life of abstinence and just focusing on your spirituality and you're not allowed to enjoy anything material in this world. And we resolved that and inshallah clearly we said our religion rejects this notion. This is not an Islamic way of viewing the world. It is perfectly fine to enjoy this world with everything in it so long as you do not make that your focus and you do not make that the end. You always keep your relationship with God as the end and those things become intermediaries and then the easy way to interact with all of this is just keep the teachings of God in mind and if you want to take it a step further it's your own awareness and mindfulness of that relationship at all times as you enjoy those things. So inshallah all of this is, is clear we don't need to spend any more time on any of this. So, until now, I think, inshallah, it should be very clear that the relationship between this world and the afterlife, the relationship in order to get eternal happiness or eternal unhappiness, let's call it a proportional relationship, a direct proportional relationship, two ingredients, faith and action. Proper faith and action in this world leads to eternal happiness, and the opposite is true. So lack of faith and the action that goes with it leads to eternal unhappiness and the afterlife. That part should be clear. Now, the, and this part, I think, inshallah, we don't need to spend too much time on this, but inshallah, this is clear both rationally and from the scripture. So we're skipping over, you know, the details of that. That part should be clear. What we want to understand now is the relationship between the two worlds. So the question that we want to ask, and there's going to be a number of these questions. 
We began the discussion last time, but we didn't get into the questions. The first question that we are going to try to answer today is what is the nature of the relationship between actions and deeds in this world and the outcome in the afterlife? Building on that, inshallah, once this is clear, as we said, we, we flipped it, but that's fine. The next question we want to ask is, what's the relationship between belief and action? That relationship. And what does that mean for the outcome? And this is also going to allow us to delve deeper into questions like, what if someone does not have the proper belief system, but they do good actions? What if someone has a proper belief system, but they commit sins? Once we understand the nature of belief and action and the role that they play with each other, how, how faith affects actions that derive out of them, and how actions affect faith, because we're saying we need both ingredients. So this is the stuff that we're going to get into. These are the details that will come, inshallah. Okay? For the time being, the first question we want to answer, which is, what is the relationship between faith and action, or whatever we can do in this world, and the outcome in the afterlife? So until now, what we presented in terms of outcome is something we have called hell and something we've called heaven. Okay, with everything that we've said about them, keeping that in mind. What's the relationship between those rewards and enjoyments of the afterlife and what we're putting in in this world? So. What do we mean by what's the relationship? When you have a cause and effect, sometimes the cause and effect is real. I'm going to use the word existential to use a philosophical term. It's a relationship. They, in philosophy, they might call it ontological. So the relationship is one of existence. And we're going to give examples of that. And sometimes the relationship between a cause and an effect is a matter of convention. And we're going to give examples of that. And we want to understand, is the relationship between this world and the next, is it a relationship of convention, or is it a relationship of existence? And it has very large implications, inshallah, we'll make those clear. The first point related to this is that in today's world, even in the Islamic world, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I'll just mention it very quickly. Because of the influence of materialism and or new age spiritualist movements and others, sometimes there's a focus on things like energy. They say the relationship between this world and the next. For sure, we should eliminate anything like a causal relationship, like a chemical relationship or a uh, physicist relationship. Those, let's take them out, out of the equation right away. But sometimes there are people who talk about a, a relationship of energy, so that anything that you are putting into this world is becoming an energy, and in the afterlife, that energy is basically re-manifesting itself one way or another. So if it's positive, it's positive, if it's negative, it's negative, and so on and so forth. I would say, generally speaking, Inshallah, what we are going to present today, Inshallah, you will see that it's a much more powerful explanation than the one of the energy, which I think is a very popular one nowadays. 
okay? New Age movements, karma, so on and so forth, they talk a lot about this, okay? Within our own contemporary scholars, there's also disagreement. If you go through their books, the books of Kalam, the books of Aqa'id, belief systems, you see some of them reject the notion of energy, especially because in a lot of cases they're talking about a very mechanical energy, you know, like the blind energy. Others have accepted the notion of energy. I can even give you some names. You have people like Shaykh Muhammad Taqi Musbah al-Yazdi, he just passed away, a big specialist scholar in, in the field of aqa'id and philosophy, beliefs, and all of these domains. He rejects entirely the notion that we could ever interpret any of this as being energies. You have other scholars in their contemporary works, Sayyid Mujtab al uh, Sheikh Nasr Makam Shirazi, others, they say, no, the energy is a very good explanation. And so it's a good way to present it to people living in this world to understand it, that it's as though it's an energy that transforms. My advice to you is, let's put the energy question aside, especially because it's not a solid proof. In any case, it would require more study to see to what extent can you actually, with your own energy, the energy that you put into an action, can that become an outcome in the afterlife? We can say that it has an outcome in this world, but based on what we said, which is a complete ending, a complete seizure of this world with nafkhasur, the end of this world, and the creation of new world and a new world in the afterlife, perhaps this becomes problematic. So let's put the energy uh, discussion aside. I just wanted to mention it in case you ever run into it, just so that you know what it is and what the discussion is about. So I'm not going to go through the rest of the details, why those who accept the energy say it's good and those who reject it say it's bad. We'll skip over that. So what is the issue that we're trying to resolve? If you go through a number of the verses of the Holy Quran, when the Holy Quran talks about people who have belief and who do good, it talks about terms like ajr and jaza. And if you go through the verses that talk about those who do not have the right belief and who do sins and evil deeds, we see also that the Holy Quran talks about the notions of ajr and jaza. Ajr and jaza being your, your requital, your award or reward or punishment. Something that you are given in exchange for something that you do, okay? The problem is that if you look at these verses, in the majority of cases, they seem to be talking about a very uh, conventional relationship. What do we mean by that? When you, if you were to hire someone to come do work for you, you have a house, you have an issue in the house, you're hiring a plumber to come fix your plumbing issues. At the end of the work that they do, they provide a service, you give them money for the service and they leave, and everybody is happy. What's the relationship between the work that they did and the money that you gave them? Is it an existential relationship? Is it a relationship built on the very being of the act? And the short answer is no, it's not. There is nothing that says that if someone performs the work that they did, 
that this needs to be the reward, which is money. There is no real causal effect between doing plumbing work and receiving money. This is a matter of convention. You agreed on something. It could be a convention between two people. It could be a convention that is cultural. A society may agree on a convention. This is called a convention. It means that it's not built into the very structure of the being of the thing. If it were, we would call it existential, but it's not. So we call it conventional. It's a matter of convention. People agree on something, okay? The same thing can be said. This is a very simplistic example, but if we want to take other examples to look specifically at the notions of reward and punishment, you can say, for instance, you have someone who knows that the law says you're not allowed to go more than perhaps 60 kilometers in this zone, and they do 100, and the cops, the police officer catches them, and they are fined. So now there's a punishment for an act. The act was driving at a certain speed. The fine is, you have to pay a fine. You have to pay a certain amount in dollars. And if that amount is not paid, it may end up, you know, revoking your license, you go to jail, whatever it may be. What's the relationship between driving at a certain speed and getting a fine? Is it existential? It's not. It's a matter of convention. Society decided, policymakers decided, that the best way to manage these types of activities in society, on the roads for instance, is going to be by setting these rules. And if you don't obey them, you have to follow certain, you know, implemented measures. So it could be fines, it could be losing your license, it could be things like that. Something like that could be said, for instance, about someone who steals and then they end up in jail. Or they perform any other crime and they end up in jail. What's the relationship between being in jail and doing that act? Is it existential? No. It was something that people agreed on, so it became a convention. Laws are conventions. Policies are conventions. It's something that people agree on. A society may agree on, for instance. And the opposite is true. We're giving the, the negative examples of this. There's also the more positive examples. Let's say, for instance, you compete in a, in a sport tournament. And at the end of it, you may get a medal, or you may get a trophy, or you may get a sum of money, a recognition that you are the best. What's the relationship between the trophy and the activity? None. It was just that people decided that for finishing first, we're going to give this object, which is symbolic of other things, for to this person. These are all examples of conventional relationships. Why are we talking about all of this? We want to see when we talk about the afterlife, is it a conventional relationship? Did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala randomly decide that if you do A, you get B? Just like some people decided that if you win the race, you get a trophy or a medal. Is it this type of relationship? And if not, then what else can it be? The other version, the other, the alternative to this is that we say no, it's a existential relationship. 
What are examples of existential relationship? For instance, someone may have really good habits taking care of their health, and they end up being very healthy. So we may not see it because there's nothing popping to us, but that's happening. Let's take the opposite of it. Someone goes to the doctor and the doctor tells them, if you do not fix your diet, and if you do not change your daily habits, how you take care of your body, you are going to end up diabetic in six months, in three years. What's the relationship between what this person is doing and the outcome? It's an existential relationship. This is not someone deciding randomly that if you do these things, you're going to get that. It's these things accumulate and it's within their nature to lead to that and there's no other consequence. How do we recognize the difference between the two? When things are conventional, they can change. Anyone can decide at any point to change the outcome, which means the relationship is random. It's a matter of convention. It's a matter of a contract, an agreement. Tomorrow we can change the law, we can change the policy, we can change the agreement, and everything changes. In the second case, you can't change that. If someone jumps from a height and they end up injuring themselves, that's an existential relationship. Cause and effect, that is existential. It's not like someone speeding and getting a fine. No one can come and change those laws so that when you jump, you're not breaking something. If someone studies and they become an expert, the accumulation of their studying over time, making them an expert, this is an existential relationship. Okay, so now the, this type of relationship, the distinction between the two, inshallah, is clear. We want to now turn our attention to the relationship between this life and the next life. Between the faith, belief, intentions, actions that we put in into this world and the things that we're going to get back in the afterlife. The reward and the punishment. And we gave a lot of examples of the rewards and punishments. We went through multiple verses of the Holy Quran and we can multiply these by many folds if we wanted to add the narrations. When we talked about heaven and hell, remember all the details. When we talked about rivers and gardens and the chambers and the decorated uh, seats and, and chairs and, and the food and the drink and so on and so forth. And the same thing in hell. Remember all of those details. When we say that if you perform a certain act and you get a certain outcome in the afterlife as a result, we want to see, is it the first type of relationship? Is it a conventional relationship, a matter of convention? Is it random and it could change? Or is it an existential relationship? And what do we mean by that? If we go to, if we go to the number of works that have addressed this, this is not something that is, you know, 100% a matter of consensus between the scholars. If you go to a scholar like Al-Alam al-Majlisi, for instance, the, the compiler, the author of Bihar al-Anwar, the biggest 
Shia Encyclopedia of Hadith, he seems to lean towards the first type of relationship. He talks about the relationship being a conventional one. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decides how to reward in the, more, in the most appropriate way for in terms of reward and in terms of punishment. End of story. If you go to other scholars who have looked at it more philosophically, they say, no, the relationship is one that is existential. And the way they present it does not stop at the level of existential relationship that we presented. It goes even further. So the examples I gave you, let's call them a weak existential relationship. So the relationship between cause and effect, let's call it a weak existential relationship. In the sense that if you are to continue with these habits, you end up having you know, a certain disease. That's a weak form of relationship. Why weak compared to what we're going to present next? The third theory, the third way of understanding all of this, is what we're going to refer to as the strong existential relationship, as opposed to the weak. If you go through the verses of the Holy Quran, and you go through especially certain narrations, you start getting a picture or an image of the relationship between this world and the next world, that we started talking about earlier, glim glimpsing at it quickly, that there is a, an apparent superficial reality to this world that everybody can see, and then there is a hidden reality to this world that is not generally accessible unless you do certain things, you pur purify yourself, you're granted a special kind of knowledge, a special kind of faculty from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that allows you to access that hidden reality. Okay, when we talk about these two realities, when we say that this world has a superficial, apparent reality and a more hidden internal reality, are we talking about two different things, or are we talking about the same thing? We're talking about the same thing. Except that if you are someone who is stuck on the appearance, if you could only see the appearance of things, the apparent, the, the external reality of the thing, the same thing, then you're stuck there. You can't go beyond. Someone else is able to look beyond the external appearance to the inner reality of the thing. But both are the same. Okay, we're gonna get into more detail here. This is what we're trying to explain. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he talks in the Holy Quran, he talks about things being apparent, superficial, external, versus things, those same things, having an inner reality. Sometimes this is referred to as al-Babal. Sometimes this is referred to as al-Malakut, by opposition to al-Mulk. Everything has a Mulk reality, an apparent reality, a Zahir reality, apparent, and everything has a Malakut reality, 
an inner reality, a hidden reality. The same thing, just like you and I, just like every action that we perform. When you look at prayer, the external reality of the prayer is what? Is someone going through the motions of the prayer. That's the external reality. Someone standing, putting their hands up, reciting Quran, doing rukur, doing sujood, tashahud. This is what reality looks, uh, the prayer looks like when we look at the superficial reality. What is the true nature of what you just did? We don't have access to it, but it has a true nature. If we understand these verses in the Quran, if we understand how this theory presents itself, then we start seeing the world in a completely different way. You start realizing that there is perhaps something that religion is talking about, pushing us towards, pushing us to remove the veil, or at least be aware that there's a veil. And this means that you're going to change all of your behavior, all of your actions. Why? And this is, this is the, the, the climax or the punchline from all of this. It means that when you perform an act, that act is going to be what is given back to you in the afterlife. You are not being given something random. You are not going to be given, you perform a prayer and you are given a garden. You're going to be performing a prayer in this world and you are given back the prayer that you performed in the afterlife. The same prayer that you prayed is going to be given back to you. Except, as we said, it's a world of truth. I repeated that a lot of times. It's going to be given to you in its true form. The prayer is not going to look like what you saw it look like in this world. And your fast is not going to look like the fast that was in this world of feeling hungry and feeling thirsty and feeling tired. This is the apparent version of it. This is a material aspect of it. What is given back to you in the afterlife is not going to be something different. Is it a matter of convention? No. Convention can change. It has to be existential. But it's not existential in the weak sense of you do something and you're given something else that is a proper cause and effect. Not even that. It's even stronger than that. We don't need to talk about a relationship because it's the same thing that you did that is going to be given back to you. If you really understand this, if you really understand that the act that you put in is given back to you in its true form, then you also, and inshallah this will become clearer and clearer in the next lessons, you will understand the importance of the quality of the act, the intention behind the act. The faith and belief is going to determine the quality of the act you're putting in. This is what really matters to God, not the external appearance. He's giving to you back your prayer, but in its true form. And its true form is going to be a representation of your faith. It's going to be a representation of your intention when you performed the act. That's why there are people who say, if you perform it really quickly, 
Your prayer becomes something like a burnt piece of bread. Is that what you want to eat? You prayed it really quickly. You take a piece of bread, you prepared it, you put it in too high because you don't have time to wait for the bread to be cooked, baked. The more you, this is one way to understand it is to say this is all metaphorical. This is, these are images to help us better understand. Okay, we're going to go through some verses of the Quran and perhaps a couple of narrations if we have time and really think about what the verse is saying. And when you read it, do you understand from those verses that they are saying the relationship between what you're doing and what you're getting? Is it a random matter of convention? Did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala randomly decide to give you back something for something else? He decided to give you a garden for a prayer. Garden and prayer have nothing to do with each other. God randomly decided one thing for another. We may say it's kind of equivalent, right? Just like the salary of the plumber, the, 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 however you, you paid them, is equivalent to the work that they did. That's fine, but it's not an existential relationship. It didn't have to be that. It could have been something else. Do these verses present the relationship as being one of convention and randomness and something that can change? Or are they talking about something a lot more existential or ontological, as we said, and real? One question before we get to the verses, one question that we may have here is that if that is the case, then why is it that when we go through the verses of the Holy Quran, the majority of the verses seem to be talking about a conventional relationship? They talk about ajr and jaza. You're getting a reward, you're getting a requital, you're getting a, something in return, an outcome. As simple as that. The short answer to this is that the Holy Quran is revealed for the masses. When it talks about things, it presents them in different levels of teaching. If you are able to delve deeper, the Holy Quran has something for you. No matter how deep you can dive into the Quran, there, was, there will be something for you. If you can't deep dive, dive deeper into the Qur'an, into its truer meaning, into its more abstract meanings, and you stay stuck at the more superficial ones, that's fine. There is something there for you too. And you will fully benefit from it. Even someone like an Imam is going to benefit from the Holy Qur'an. The Imams themselves keep telling us that the Holy Qur'an is alive. The Holy Qur'an is not a book with words in it. It interacts. If you understand that it's alive and you can go deep in it, it will also give you something in return. It talks to you. That's why the Imams feel something. Otherwise, it would be completely repetitive. It would not have any further meaning for them. They would not go into all sorts of spiritual states when they read certain verses of the Quran as we have in our narrations. And inshallah, we'll dedicate some lectures to that. So this is at the level of our infallible Imams. So of course for us, ordinary people going through the whole Quran, of course there's always something more if you want, and if you allow yourself, and you prepare yourself, and you equip yourself, 
to be able to dive deeper into it and take out these meanings. So is it there or not? It's there. You just have to look for it. This is what we're going to try to do. If you recite, if you read the verses that we're going to go through without what we said in mind, you may understand them differently. Now that we said what we said, we talked about maybe there being different types of relationships. When you read these verses, it's going to beg the question. It's going to force you now to look at these verses in a different light. To say, what is this verse actually saying? Is it talking about a conventional relationship? Or is it talking about a, an existential one? The other question is, why is it that this world is created in this way? That we seem to be stuck only seeing the external reality. And we're not able to see the inner reality. A first quick question, to the, a quick answer to this, is that this is the nature of the world that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala intended. If everyone can see the true reality of things, there is no necessity for believing in the ghayb and believing in a God that you can't see materially. And this is a huge part of the test. To believe in al-ghayb, to believe in the hidden, to work your mind, there's enough out there without relying on the material causes to believe. If on top of all of that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made those things that are the hidden reality of things, if He made them manifest, then what's the test? There is no test left. The test is specifically to see. When you tell someone, if you do this, the reward is going to be that in, in two hours or in ten years. There's someone who will refuse that because they want the immediate. And another person will say, no, I will be disciplined if there, was, there will be a reward or a punishment later. I understand that. You wait. And through reason and logic, you should be able to reach that conclusion. This is the test. If everyone had access to the exact feeling that they would have later, there is no test. Everything is available to you, accessible to you right now. If you understood that the reality of this sin is fire, you don't need to go to the afterlife. You would get the fire in this world and it would end there. But there's no test in that way because no one would walk into the fire. The test is being told Allah says, your creator says, this is fire. And you still defying him and saying, I don't care. I don't see it as a fire. So it's not a fire to me. That's it. This is where the test happens. Do you believe in al-ghayb or not? And do you believe when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes and tells you, I am telling you there's a, an external reality, an apparent reality, and a hidden one. Do you believe in that? Do you believe that you only know the apparent reality? And that the true form is going to be given back to you in the afterlife? And we're going to see the verses say that explicitly. Okay? I don't know if we just lost something, but it looks like it's still on. So we keep going. The second reason why we're stuck and we don't see the reality and we only see the superficial, the apparent, 
is that we have focused only on the superficial and the apparent. We are distracted by this world. We don't spend, what's the fraction of work that we put in our souls so that we understand the spiritual world? As opposed to the fraction, the portion of time and energy and work we put understanding the material world and interacting with it. So this is simply to say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala intended this world to be a world where we are kind of stuck as a general rule interacting and seeing what's external and apparent only. But is there a way to access that inner reality? Yes, there is. But it requires work. We get glimpses of it. And we are told about it. We're told how, for instance, certain prophets have access to the inner realities of things. And the more you go into the narrations, you have that, but in the Holy Quran, there are many examples of that too. So this is where you start seeing that perhaps this is one of the main distinctions of prophets and others, of imams and others, that their focus is on the inner reality of things, the true form of things, not the apparent. They're not concerned so much with the apparent. They know that the apparent is just a superficial layering, covering of things. And it doesn't really matter. There's something true. And the true is not in the sense that I have to metaphorically create it, symbolically say, no, that is more important. I have to give it. No, no, no. It really is something different. But we're stuck on another version of it. If someone brought to you something that looked extremely tasty, but you're told there's poison or there's something toxic on it, you would not look at how tasty it smells or, or looks or could even taste. You wouldn't look at that. You wouldn't be concerned with that because you know it has something toxic or poisonous in it. To you, that's all that will matter. Why are you bringing this to me? If you are actually able to see a sin this way and not see the external appearance, what the sin may look like, because it may look like something very pleasurable and seductive and something very enjoyable. If you don't see that layer, just like the good food or the good drink, it may look like a really cool, amazing drink and you're very thirsty, but you're told this is poison. You won't drink it and you won't, you'll forget your thirst for a second and say this is poison. I'd rather not drink anything and keep going thirsty than kill myself drinking this. If you're able to actually see sins this way, then that changes the relationship you have with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and with your own self and with your deeds and with your actions entirely. And the way you can glimpse that, first of all, is making sure you understand and being aware of this. But more importantly, if someone wants to experience this, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us the door is open. You have that possibility. But this world is not meant for this. So you have to work extra hard on your spiritual side and then you would get glimpses of the inner realities of things. You might see things differently. You might think about things differently. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give you that because you've worked, you've done the work and you're equipped for that. You're ready for that. But even if you don't go that far, just the realization of it, I think, is still a very powerful thing. Okay, so a few things to keep in mind, and then we go into the, some verses of the Quran about this, 
and today we don't have the, the projector, so I'll try to go slowly when I read them. The first thing is, as soon as, and we talked about this, this is why I'm, I'm trying to connect a lot of the things that we said in the past here. When we talked about a human being starting to die, and no longer being able to repent, and no longer being able to act, because now it's too late, one of the, the first things that starts happening is that, is that you start seeing things as they truly are. And this is one of the differences between you as you die and move into the Barzakh world and you stuck here in your body. In your Barzakh form, you're much more spiritual and you have access to much more reality of things. And that's why as people start dying, they start seeing a lot of the things that were right in front of them, but they did not realize them or see them before in that way. Okay, and so without, I'm not going through the examples here, I leave this with you. I know one day you will encounter narrations and you will see stories and you will, this is what it's talking about. It's that you are no longer stuck with the, your body, your material way of understanding the world. You're starting to see the world in a spiritual way because you're now a soul, you're now a spirit. So you have access to that world. That's one. That, so that's when it starts. And as you go into Adam al-Barzakh, into that intermediary world, this becomes more and more real to you. It starts from the moment of death. And inshallah, we're going to see an example of that in one narration, a general one. But we actually mentioned a few of them, and we'll talk about it a little bit later as a reminder. I'll remind you that we've talked about all of this, but I, ha I didn't present it this way. The next point is that I began by saying this is a very powerful thing to understand the world this way. Why? Three big reasons. The first one is, as a theory, and this applies to science, this applies to anywhere, the power of a theory, the power of an interpretation is how much explanatory power does it have? How much can it explain? So we could talk about that for lectures and lectures. This comes from important notions from the philosophy of science. When someone comes up with a new theory or theorem in science, one of the things they're looking at is how much explanatory power it has. It's not, you know, how creative the idea is. It's how much can it explain? As opposed to another theory. If this theory only explains 20% of the problem we're trying to solve, and this one can explain 60%, then that second one has much more explanatory power. This theory that we just presented, this way of understanding the relationship with the afterlife, is a very powerful theory or interpretation because of its explanatory power. If you keep this in mind, every time you think about your relationship to your actions, and the relationship of those actions with the afterlife, you'll see that it has a tremendous explanatory power because things are no longer random. They're not a matter of convention. Okay, that's one. The second point is, it's coherent. The more you go into even other fields, and inshallah we will have series or some lectures at least where we talk about more spiritual aspects of our, you know, development. How do you work on your soul? How do you purify the soul, for instance? This is where this field becomes very, very important. But it goes beyond that. 
when you look at different aspects of our belief system, do you, are you still able to hold all of it together through this theory? So this is the coherence of the theory. To what degree does this interpretation still allow you to speak of something coherent? If you don't have this, then you're often required to say, oh, but this is metaphorical, and this is symbolic, and this is allegorical, and this is figurative. It's not real. If you keep this interpretation in mind, you're going to see that it is not allegorical and metaphorical. The language may be, but the relationship is not. Okay? The last point is, and inshallah this one is clear, is that it's extremely powerful because it changes the way you conduct yourself. It has spiritual power. It has an application power in your daily life. So this is why I say, I think I presented this a little bit sooner than I wanted to initially, but for these three reasons, for its explanatory power at the theoretical level only, and at the level of coherence, but at the level of application. This changes the way you view actions. This changes the way you view sins. This changes the way you view good deeds. If you understand that what you are given back is the same thing that you did, but given it back to you in its true form, including and entirely based on the intention with which you did it, the quality with which you did it. That's what's given back to you, not something random. This solves a whole lot of issues. It changes entirely the way you view things. If you know that what I'm getting back, if I put this in a bag and I know that I'm going to be told that in 10 years this is what I'm getting back and that's it, then I think I'm going to take care of this. And I'm going to make sure that I put it in in the best possible shape because I'm stuck with this forever. That's, that's how I have to view my prayer and my fasting and the sins. If that sin is going to be given back to me in its true form, I have to rethink what does that sin look like today, but what is it going to look like tomorrow? Okay, and we're going to go see some of the verses. And I'm sure as we go through this and your whole entire journey in religion, which never ends until the moment we die, you're going to keep encountering these examples. And if you keep this in mind, you'll see that it changes your relationship completely with any deed. And that gives a new meaning to the sincerity and the quality of what you put in. So, with all of this said, let's look at a few verses. The first one, and there's a few of them in the Holy Quran, in Surah Al-Baqarah and Surah Al-Muzammil, it talks about, it says, and whatever good you sent forth for yourselves, وَمَا تُقَدِّمُوا لِأَنفُسِكُمْ مِنْ خَيْرًا تَجِدُوهُ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ You shall find it with Allah. Okay? So I want you to combine all of these verses together. We're just going to look at a few of them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, whatever good you forward to yourself, you advance to yourself, if I want to be literal, وَمَا تُقَدِّمُوا Whatever you advance to yourself, مِنْ خَيْرٍ تَجِدُوهُ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ You will find it. You're not going to find something else as a reward for it. You will find that thing itself, the good that you forwarded to yourself and you presented it to God. That's what you will find yourself getting back in the afterlife. وَمَا تُقَدِّمُوا لِأَنفُسِكُمْ مِنْ خَيْرٍ تَجِدُوهُ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ 
you are going to go find it with God in the afterlife, you will find that same good that you put in. You're not going to find something else given in return, in exchange, as a reward for it. Okay? That's one example. Another example. The day when one will see that which his hands have sent forth. The day that every person will see what his hands have sent forth. What have your hands sent forth? Is it a garden? Is it a paradise, for instance? Or is it hellfire? No, it's the act. It means you will find you will see exactly that which you did, not something else given back to you in exchange for what you did. These are two different ways of understanding the verse. That's why I said, based on what we said, you're probably going to see these words or these verses in a new light. Another verse. On the day, in Surah Al-Imran 30, on the day when every soul will be confronted with all the good it has done and all the evil, it will wish there was a great distance between it and its evil. Again, on the day when every soul will be confronted with all the good that it has done and all the evil. It's not going to be the reward of the good. It's not going to be the punishment of the evil. No, what you're confronted with is the good itself. Okay? In Surah Zalzalah, on that day, men will proceed in companies sorted out to be shown in the deeds that they have done. In Surah Zalzalah, what does it say? You're not being shown the reward or the punishment of your amal. You are shown your amal itself. What you are seeing is your amal, except you're seeing it in its true form. And we're going to see that in a second, in case it's not clear. In another verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Nisa, verse 10, Truly those who unjustly eat up the possessions of orphans, those who eat up the wealth, the possessions of the orphans. There are people, this was a very big problem at that time. It still exists today. The problem itself exists Maybe not of the same magnitude. But at that time, there were a lot of orphans. And of course, when you have orphans, if they're lucky, there's a guardian. There's someone taking care of them. Except that the orphans are young, they don't know what's going on, and that person is going to dip into their wealth, into their possessions, instead of keeping it safe and intact for them so that they enjoy it later on. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about a specific social problem. Okay, but this can apply to a whole lot of other situations. Let's look at the punishment that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about. And again, please focus on, is this relationship a, an existential one or a conventional one? That's what we're trying to understand. <inaudible> Those who eat at the possessions of the orphans out of oppression, what they are eating, truly what they are eating, 
in their bellies is a fire. And then they will be made to scorch in the blaze or in the flame. There's a lot here, but the verse is very clear. What these people are doing now versus what they will get in the afterlife. What they are doing now, what we see, the apparent version of the act, is someone getting richer at the expense of the orphans. That's what it looks like. The inner reality, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, what they are doing is filling their bellies with fire. That's the inner reality of this, but they don't see it. If they were to see the inner reality of their act, they would see someone eating fire in their belly. Innama, and innama in Arabic is to emphasize, truly they are eating fire in their bellies. Innama ya'kuduna fi butunihim nara. And then what about the afterlife? This is happening now. They are eating fire now. And in the afterlife, said, and in the future, there will be a blazing flame for them. There's something happening now they're not seeing. And then there's something awaiting them in the afterlife, which is nothing but their same action given back to them, but in its true form. Another verse. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and this is me trying to wrap up the topic, because we don't want to keep talking about this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Rum, they know only, they know, human beings, okay? They know only some outward aspect of the life of this world. يَعْلَمُونَ ظَاهِرًا مِنَ الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا ظَاهِرًا is a part of, they don't even know the full apparent aspect of this world. But all they know is the appearance of this world. Which means what? Which means there's a Bahman. Which means there's an inner reality, but all they know, all they interact with, and we're going to see how the verse ends, and I'm going to link it to another verse. The verse is saying they are being oblivious, they are being heedless of the true reality, and they're focused only on the external. They only know the sum of the outward appearance of the world of this life. But the here, of the hereafter, they are heedless or they are oblivious. They are heedless or oblivious of the afterlife. Another verse. So keep this obliviousness in mind. Keep the fact that the Quran just said that all we know of this world is the apparent external superficial part of it and not even the full the fullness of it it doesn't say you know the bahir. it doesn't we don't even know the full extent of the superficial aspect of this world we know some of it and we are heedless of the hereafter and then and we we uh, went through this verse a few times allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in surah qaf says you were indeed heedless of this when it will be the day of judgment, as these people are being brought to hell. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks to them and he tells them, you were heedless or you were oblivious of this, which means what? When are you oblivious or heedless? Or fi ghaflatin? When does the ghafla happen? Does it happen when something is not in front of you? No. It only happens when something is in front of you, but you're ignoring it. 
You say this someone is ghafil. They have ghafla. Right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us, all of us, especially those people, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, as they are entering hell, He tells them, لَقَدْ كُنْتَ فِي غَفْلَةٍ مِنْ هَذَا You were indeed heedless or oblivious of this. Now we have removed from you your veil. فَكَشَفْنَا عَنْكَ غِطَاءَكَ فَبَصَرُكَ الْيَوْمَ حَدِيدٍ So on this day, your sight is going to be piercing or metal sharp. Now you're going to see through things. Now you're going to see the reality of things. Now in the afterlife. Does it mean that that reality was not there? No, it was there. But you were heedless. When you put these verses together, clearly you see that the Holy Quran is saying there is more to this life than the apparent superficial external realities that we see. And this is a very big topic and it requires a lot more discussion, but for the purposes that we're trying to reach, it's to understand the relationship between act and outcome of the afterlife. Is it a conventional relationship or is it an existential one? So inshallah by now, we clearly established that it is a, an existential one. If I can take maybe 10 more minutes, I'll read two narrations for you. The first one, inshallah, is just one of many, many narrations. But this one is in Amali al-Sadur. It's considered a strong, good narration. And it gives us the, a good way of starting to get into this whole topic. Just something to keep in mind. And it's directly from the Holy Prophet So that's one. The second one, if you guys have the interest and, and the patience, the second one, I'm trying to do two things with it. The first thing is, it's related to the topic that we presented. The second reason is, I promised you that as we are going through the holy month of Rajab, we'll continue to talk about it. There's too much to cover. So instead of me talking about it, I thought I would just read a narration. But I want you to listen to the narration based on what we just said. The relationship between this world and the next world. And the relationship between your acts here, the appearance, the external appearance of what the act looks like, and what it becomes in its true form in the afterlife. Okay? So these are the narrations. The first one is from Qais ibn Asim. He says, I once set out from afar with a group of companions to visit al Medina al-Munawwara after the Holy Prophet had moved there. We came into the presence of the Most Noble Messenger, peace and blessings be upon him and his family. And I asked him to bestow some counsel upon us. Give me some advice. I said, since we are desert dwellers and only rarely come into the city, we wish to make use of this opportunity and benefit from your eloquent words. The Prophet replied, pride is followed. So these are the concise, these are beautiful sayings from the Holy Prophet. Inshallah, one day we have an opportunity to go through these many, many short sayings of the Holy Prophet that require so much thinking and so much talking and, and understanding. In any case, the Holy Prophet says, Pride is followed by humiliation. Life is followed by death. This world is followed by the afterlife. Everything that exists is without doubt subject to an accounting. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a muhasaba for everything. And there is one who watches over all things. There is a reward for every good deed and a punishment for every evil deed. 
Up to now, I would say this is what we've been talking about. Okay? There is a set period for everything. Then the Holy Prophet adds. He says, O Qais, you have a friend and a companion who one day will be buried with you. When you are buried, he will still be alive although you are dead. You are dead because you can no longer do anything. All action will be his. If your companion is noble and a man of honor, he will honor you. And if, you are, if he is lowly and vile, he will torment and trouble you. He will be resurrected together with you. And you will be resurrected together with him. No questions will be put to you. They will all be directed to him. Choose then a worthy and righteous companion. For if your companion is righteous, he will comfort you. But if he is wicked, you will wish to flee him in terror. That everlasting companion and friend is none other than your deeds. So, inshallah, with what we said until now, this becomes clear. What is our deed and what it becomes the moment we die and what happens after? The last narration that I promised you is about the month of Rajab. So, inshallah, this is, as we say, Two birds, one stone. So do I read it in Arabic or do I just read it in, in English? It's not that long. Both. So in Arabic, I'll read it entirely. In Kana Yomul Qiyam, Imam Sadiq alayhi salam. This is a book from um, This is a book from uh, Shaykh al-Saduq. Um, I didn't write the, uh, the the source here, but this is from Fada'il al-Ashhur al-Talata from Shaykh al-Saduq. In fact, these were three books, very short, tiny little treaties that Sheikh al-Saduq wrote um, that were later, when they were published, they were published as one book called Fala'al al-Ashhur al-Thalata. But in fact, he wrote three little books. And these, this is one of the earlier works with some of the most authentic, usually the, the narrations of Sheikh al-Saduq are considered very authentic, about the merits of all three holy months, Rajab, Shaban, and Ramadan. So a lot of the narrations, if you want to find them in one place without any additional commentary, nothing, just the narrations themselves from a very considered a trustworthy source, it's Shaykh al-Saduq and his Fada'a al-Ashhur al-Talata. So from Imam al-Sadiq alayhi salam, he says, إِذَا كَانَ يَوْمُ الْقِيَامَةِ نَادَ مُنَادٍ مِنْ بُطْنَانِ الْعَرْشِ When it will be the day of judgment. There will be a caller calling from the throne of God. Aynal Rajabiyun. Where are the people who are known for being the ones who took care of the month of Rajab? So they are referred to as Rajabiyun. So this call is coming from within the throne of God, Imam Salam alayhi salam says. Min Butnan al Arsh. Aynal Rajabiyun. Fayakum Unasun Yadi'u. So their faces are bright, inshallah, I'll read the, the quick translation after. وعزتي وجلالي لأكرمن مثواكم ولأجزلن عطاءكم أو عطاياكم ولأوتينكم من الجنة غرفا تجري من تحتها الأنهار خالدين فيها ونعم أجر العاملين 
إنكم تطوعتم بالصوم لي في شهر عظمت حرمته or عظمت حرمته وأوجبت حقه ملائكتي أدخل عبادي وإمائي الجنة ثم قال جعفر بن محمد عليه السلام هذا لمن صاب من رجب شيئا ولو يوما واحدا في أوله أو وسطه أو آخره When it will be the day of judgment there will be a caller calling from the throne of God Where are the Rajabiyun, the people of the month of Rajab? So a group of people will stand, their faces illuminating to the gathered masses, on their heads crowns of kingdom, ornamented with jewels of crystals and sapphire. So again, please keep in mind the whole discussion we had. Focus on both the importance and the sacredness of the month of Rajab, as well as the discussion we just had about the relationship between what you do here and what it becomes, which is nothing but its inner reality in the afterlife. Illuminating to the gathered masses, their faces illuminating to the gathered masses, on their heads crowns of kingdom, ornamented with jewels of crystals and sapphire, with each of them 1,000 angels to their right and 1,000 angels to their left, telling them, Congratulations to you, O servant of God. Enjoy the honor, the honor bestowed upon you by God. Then the call will come on behalf of God Almighty. My servants, both male and female, by my might and majesty, I will make your abodes honorable and your rewards generous. And I will grant you the elevated rooms of paradise under which the rivers flow to remain there and forever, and great is the reward of those who worked. You volunteered to fast for me in a month whose sacredness is great and whose reward I have promised, O oh, my angels, escort my servants, male and female, to paradise. And then the Imam added, this is for one who fasts anything of the month of Rajab, even a single day, from its beginning or middle or end. So imagine someone who fasts the whole month or half the month or a few weeks in the month. So inshallah with this, these were inshallah both examples of the month of Rajab, this one, but the two narrations inshallah are clear and how we can start understanding the narrations or the verses of the Quran that talk about reward and punishment in a different light. Not as random rewards and random Punishments that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decides as a matter of simple promise or convention But it's rather that he is simply giving us back Whatever we put in But in its true form And this gives a new meaning when we say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the most just of the just Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not giving us anything different than what we put in So how can he not be just if all you are giving back is what you put in yourself. What else can be more just than that? Because someone may complain that, that the act or the punishment does not match the act. They don't, you can't reconcile them. They look very different. When you understand this, you understand that you've already resolved that issue, which is all you're getting back is the reality of your act. This requires a lot more explanation. We'll come to it, inshallah. I know there's questions related to that, so inshallah, we'll come and we'll have a couple of dedicated lectures to this topic. So that's it.
So questions, concerns, comments, um, I'm all ears. Yeah, uh, I don't have to have the answer for right now to, to answer in the future. So yeah. But, um, just, yeah, I just want to get a little bit better understanding how it works because like, uh, when we're talking about you get the action itself, uh, it in the afterlife, first of all, the afterlife is assumed to die or like the, the actual place where you end. So, and then, um, if you're getting like what you're saying, the action you get basically you keep it. You have that manifestation, right? Or that action forever. Um, let's say if you're in Jannah and you have bad actions, how does that work? Or if you're not and you have good actions, how does that work? Do you do like a little detour, or is, uh, or do, is that what gets taken care of before we end up in where we end up, or uh, just uh, on top of that? Situation more, since it's something that is basically with you forever. So the the first question is, uh, does this start when we die, as soon as we die, or in the afterlife? The short answer, and we've talked about this, that that's why I'm answering it. The short answer is the true reward and punishment for anything and everything is only in the afterlife, and anything before is versions, manifestations, other things, but it does not follow the rule, which is you get reward and punishment for your actions. This is all only in the afterlife. Anything that happens before may be a form of that or not. As we said, there might be people who leave this world with sins, to touch on your second question, in the case of someone who is a believer, but they have sins. What happens to them? So inshallah, we're going to dedicate at least two lectures to this, we're going to look at it from different angles. It's a very important question and the opposite. Okay, but I think the one that preoccupies us more is having faith and action, uh, bad deeds and actions with it. Inshallah, we're going to come to that. Um, but as we said in Alam al-Barzakh, one of the reasons why we go through Alam al-Barzakh, especially for the believers, is that it is also a purification. And so if you are leaving this world with too many sins and, and harms and damages done and you were not able to get rid of all of that before you leave this world this is another chance for all of that to get sorted out so that by the time you reach the afterlife inshallah you go straight to heaven but even that is not a guarantee and inshallah we come back to that discussion two excellent questions good any other questions yeah so when you say you fast the uh first or middle or the end of Sha'ban, like, does it have to be the exact first, the middle, and end, or can it be in between those? No, so the Imam is saying anywhere. Oh, okay. So you can decide, and that's why, that's the whole, the whole point of the Imam, is that he's saying whatever you fast, this is your minimum reward. And then there is more reward than that. This is, as the Imam says, this is for the one who fasts anything in the month of Rajab. So if you add to that, then of course, and, and I didn't want to mention the much, much longer narrations, but we have narrations that, as I said, they list different numbers of days. We have some that talk, for instance, about 3 and 8 and 11, and we have some that give 20 of the days. You know, if you fast one day, two days, three days, five days, six days, eight days, and they go like that all the way to the full month. So, but it, it's a much longer narration. And it says for every, in every case how much more you're getting. But if you understand this one as being the reward for someone who fasts anything in the month of Rajab, 
then you can go only more and up from there. So this is the minimum for a single day fasted in the month of Rajab. What is not said here, and inshallah it's understood, is that this is a day that is truly fasted and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has accepted that fast from you in that day. Then you get this. This is someone who has done what they need to do. They have, you know, they, they're on the straight path. Their belief system is good. They have repented to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They're on the right path. Everything is checked off. And then they're adding this fast to the actions. This is the reward. And this is the minimal reward because it's only for a single day. And it can only go up from there. Okay? Inshallah. I just wanted to know what percentage of scholars today think that the relationship is uh, existential between actions and rewards, and what percentage would, would think it uh, more conventional? It would be very difficult to answer that. Um, I will just say that, generally speaking, the scholars who have introduced items of um, any scholars that talk about um, or who are considered to be scholars of ethics, akhlaq, or irfan, falsafa. So the whole school of Mullah Sadra, Sayyidat Taba Taba'i, all of his students, so Sheikh Jawadi Amali, Sheikh Musbah Yazdi, they all ascribe to this school and many others as well. One thing to mention though, on top of this, is that as this is, if we're talking strictly as an interpretive or philosophical theory in general, if we put that aside now, Forget the theory, forget this, because we're trying to present this as a coherent series of logical lessons, okay? Put, put that aside. All of our scholars today in the Shia school, all of them without exception, and many scholars in the other schools in Islam, they all agree that there is something called the manifestation or the embodiment of your actions. Tajassum al-A'mal, that your deeds are going to be embodied for you in the afterlife. And the reason is there are too many narrations to ignore this. So all we're doing with this is not to introduce this topic. The topic is there, well introduced as we saw the verses of the Quran, they talk about this. And this is a very valid way of, of explaining it. What this gives us is kind of the, the theory to make sense of it. But even if you took that theory out or you say there are gaps in it, you are still stuck with dozens upon dozens of narrations that talk about the embodiment, and these are two quick examples, and there are so many others. Literally, I, I want to say hundreds if not thousands of these narrations where you have very clear examples of the embodiment of your deeds and of your actions. And all the scholars accept that. So whether you agree or not with this little detail, this little uh, logical layer that we added or not, that aspect is a matter of consensus and everybody agrees with it. That there will be an embodiment of our deeds, our actions, our beliefs in the afterlife. And it starts from the moment we die and it goes onwards. In fact, when we spoke about Alam al-Barzakh, one of the first things we talked about, we said what happens in the grave. As we wake up in the grave and we get ready to receive the angels that interrogate those who die, we said that there are certain manifestations that appear around the person who has just died. We said the prayer appears, and fasting appears, and pilgrimage appears, 
and charity appears, and we said walaya appears. And this is an embodiment. So it's no different than the narration of the Holy Prophet, which is much less detailed. In this case, he just says, you are stuck with a companion. In that one, you have five companions. There are other narrations that talk about more, and some of them that come and go. In all of them, the common thread is that your actions are embodied. The moment you die, you start seeing what your actions look like. And you are stuck with that, and this is going to be your reward or your punishment, starting from Alam al-Barzakh and onwards into Alam al-Akhirah. What you are getting back is the true form. If you were to read, for instance, the true form of Surah Tabarak or Surah Ar-Rahman, for instance, or reading the Quran, and those who stick to the Quran, the people of the Quran, the companions of the Quran, how the Quran defends them in the afterlife, and how it will become one of their main intercessors. No matter, you have sins, you have shortcomings, the Quran steps up and says, I'm here, and this person held on to me. This person was one of my people, the Holy Quran says in the afterlife. And we have that for specific chapters. People who continuously have, you have a relationship with Surah Al-Rahman, you have a relationship with Surah Tabarak, the Holy Prophet says they will come to you and they will stand by you and they will have the best of shapes in the afterlife because they will come in their true form, not the words that we read on pages in this world. So these are just quick examples. And as I said, there are literally thousands of them. The idea that actions and beliefs and intentions, all of them get embodied from the moment we die afterwards. That part is a matter of consensus in Islam. Yeah. So the question is the true form that we will all find in the hereafter is an abstract idea that may be too difficult to reconcile for many. How can this be explained in a more simplified way if that is possible? So uh, that's what, what I tried to do and I know that it is an abstract idea and that's why I said in general, if you read the majority of the verses of the Holy Quran, they simply talk about reward and punishment without getting into this reality that this is a true form, something that has an inner meaning and an outer meaning. But it's no different than, as we said, you know, in this life, something may look like it's a candy, but the true form of the candy is you're going to get a cavity or you're going to get sick. That's what you're going to get at the end if you overdose on this, if you eat too much of this. There's a reality to it that may not be apparent to you. You're only seeing the sweetness of the candy or the sweetness of the chips or whatever it may be that is unhealthy. But it has another effect on you that you're not seeing right now. If you were you know, to hold a microscope and look at what happens, if you drink a can of soda, how much sugar is going in and what's happening to your body as this goes in, you're not going to focus on the taste of the pop uh, in your, on your tongue or in your mouth. You're going to be traumatized by what's actually physically happening in your body, which is not being seen by you right now. It's hidden from you. It's no different than that. We're saying that there is a hidden reality that we are not noticing, but the veil will be lifted off of our eyes in the afterlife, and we will see things for what they truly are. I don't know if this makes it uh, easier to understand or I just confuse things more, uh, but in itself, I know that it is a, a slightly more abstract topic, clearly, and this is exactly how it's presented. And um, I've tried to present it, as I said from the beginning, in the 
clearest and simplest way I can, inshallah, I, I was able to, to some degree. And, uh, and we'll come back to it, inshallah, if there are more questions or if I can find a better ways to give some examples, more clear examples to this, inshallah. There was a question here. I had a question in terms of like intention. Uh, knowing what you told us today, does that give us more of a responsibility to act on uh, like what we know now, as opposed to someone who doesn't know this? Like, would, would our actions be like judged in terms of us knowing this? Because some people don't know, right? Like someone, for example, who didn't attend this lecture, who's never told this information, wouldn't they have, for example, like a, a different reward or punishment based on what they know and based on what we know? So we're not saying in this lecture that this is an absolute truth. That's one. Okay, I'm not saying this is exactly the absolute truth. This is our best understanding. But I think, as I said, the reason why we're presenting it, it's, it's so powerful and it represents today's scholarship on this issue. That's one. The second uh, part of the answer, which is, does it mean now that I know this that I have a different responsibility towards my intentions, the quality of my work. The short answer to this is, of course. And this is not about this topic. This is about anything that you know. And inshallah, we're going to get back to that when we talk about the next lectures are going to address this from different angles. It's not about the deeds. It's about the intentions. And the intentions come from the person who has the agency, the person who performs the act. It's not the act itself that matters. The misconception that someone may have, and inshallah will address it, is that someone may think, so it's better for me not to know, because then I will not have the responsibility. And I think we've talked about it, but we will talk about it again. And we'll say that Allah subhanahu wa does not accept that as an excuse. So there is, it's not enough of a pretext or an excuse to say, I did not know. Okay, and inshallah we will address that misconception directly. It, there is no case where just... Uh, not knowing is better than knowing. But once you know, there's a responsibility because it can be used against you if you do nothing with it. Okay? So, inshallah, this is clear, but this is a very condensed, short answer to that. Inshallah, we're going to come to this in the next lecture. Yeah. Um, just to add to the point of uh, existential uh, action, um, so, like, uh, I was, like, uh, reading and, like, listening and, like, um, I'm not sure if it relates to or adds to it the fact that, uh, for example, we are the creation of God and he, he, uh, we are his most loved creation. And he said, uh, um, So for example, when, uh, when uh, Allah reveals to, uh, or the Prophet uh, through Allah reveals to Muhammad so like before I used to interpret it as like, for example, uh, when Sayyid Abu Ja'far used to read uh, uh, like for example, the Akhra, you read and then you elevate. I used to think that there are levels and then you like, for example, you elevate to that level. So you're, you're, uh, you're basically your quality is based on the level you've reached. But then like I dug deep and then I realized that like, um, it's not that you reach a level, it's that you become that level. It's that you're like beyond what you see in this physical world. And so for example, when we go to like uh, Imam Hussein, we say Maqam Imam Hussein because he is that like level of highness and all that. So like it's, it's like not only that our actions, but the fact that 
the creation itself of ourself is like way beyond the physical form. Absolutely. It's an excellent point, but this takes the abstraction level even higher. That will be the next logical philosophical conclusion to this topic. But inshallah, maybe later in other lectures, we will get to that and explain how that works. The idea behind something like Iqra Warqa is that every time you recite a verse of the Quran, you get elevated a rank and a rank in the, uh, in the narrations is uh, greater than the distance between earth and the heavens. That's what between one rank and another. And that's why many scholars say that the number of ranks of paradise is equal to the number of verses of the Quran and so on and so forth. Clearly, if you understand all of this, is we're not saying that you're actually going to recite. What we said about the afterlife is you can't do anything. The only thing you can do is use what you put in in this world. So it's not, you can't read in the afterlife. You are stuck with the actions that you performed. So the actions that you performed in this world that embodied one verse of the Qur'an give you one rank. The actions that embodied two verses of the Qur'an will give you two ranks. The actions that embodied 200 verses of the Qur'an will give you 200 ranks. So you are being elevated based on the actions that you put in. So your qira'ah is nothing more than replaying the tape of your actions and who you are and the level that you reached or you have become, as you put it, which exactly some of the verses of the Qur'an seem to be saying, and inshallah we'll come to that, when it says, for instance, هم darajatun and Allah, there are people that themselves are a rank before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that's the topic. So inshallah that's the, another topic that we get to. But for the time being, yes, you are absolutely right in saying that there is even a higher level to understanding all of this, which is seeing ourselves as a rank of paradise or a rank of hell. And in another way to understand it, it's to say that every human being is, is his own rank. There are no two people who will ever be equal. So depending on your circumstances and your understanding and your responsibility and how you interacted and how much you knew and so on and so forth, you are in a rank of your own. Of course there will be others who are in similar ranks, but no one will ever be in the exact same precise situation as you ever were, right? And so therefore you are your own rank. And that rank can be personified by how much of the Holy Quran you embodied or you became in this world. And that is your status in the afterlife. That's the, the topic, and it's an excellent point. Are we good? Okay.